Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive new episodes a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Easy Vidra, managing partner of Remagine Ventures. Remagine focuses on a cluster of interconnected sectors, specifically media, entertainment, sports, commerce, and data. We discuss consumer tech investing in Israel, VR and AR, as well as the different use cases when it comes to the metaverse, and a bunch more. Without further ado, here's Easy. Easy. Thank you so much for joining me here. How are you? Mike, it's so good to be here. I'm good. I'm excited that we finally made it happen after emailing back and forth for a couple of years. <laughs> I know. I'm thrilled as well. You're on my short list when I started the podcast. And finally, here we are. This is this is fantastic. Love it. Love it. You know, I know that Reimagine, it's based in, in Israel, or you obviously have a lot of ties to Israel. What are some of the reasons why Israel has thrived as really like an entrepreneurial center? Uh, that's a great question. So in, you're right that in Fund One, Reimagine Ventures is focused on Israeli-related startups. If you look at sort of like the size of the global venture market, you have the US with like $330 billion raised in 2021, China with approximately that, maybe 326 and then Outside of those markets, U.S. and China, you know, maybe with the exception of India, it's U.S. and U.K., with the U.K. raising about $40 billion in 2021 and Israel with 26.6. What's crazy is that Israel is a country of about 9 million people, so per capita, it's kind of like unprecedented. Unbelievable. There's a whole book that sort of like tells the story of why or how Israel went from exporting oranges in the 90s to sort of like Startup Nation. Uh, the book is called Startup Nation. I highly recommend it for anyone that's interested in that. But the short answer is it's a combination of, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. It's a small country that uh, sort of like needed to to innovate, to stay alive. But, um, but also it's, you know, it's part of the culture. In the U.S., you know, I'm sure that you've seen the show Entourage and it's about the story of like four guys, you know, that one of the friends becomes like a Hollywood star and they, they move to L.A. and they live, they live the life in Hollywood, right? In Israel, there was a similar show on TV, but the story is about four friends that sell a startup, you know, and that's the role model is to be a tech entrepreneur. Uh, so it's very rare in Israel to take a cab or to go to a restaurant and, and not getting pitched if, you, if people know that you're a VC. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So it's really just part of the culture. And it just seems like there's a lot of even like I know like the government also does like quite a bit of funding too with an entrepreneur. So it really is just kind of embedded into into, you know, the, the citizens really. Yeah, if you want to get to the nitty gritty of it, what really kickstarted it was a sort of like a VC program that gave funds money to invest with some you know, downside protection and then upside protection as well. So if you if you did really well, you only have to return a little bit. If you if you lost the money, that's okay. We won't chase you. And you know, you combine that with sort of like uh, high technical skills and sort of like a risk taking culture and uh, the timing of all of that. You know, sort of like at the time that tech was becoming big at the late 90s, you know, started with semiconductors, maybe continued with cybersecurity. And the bet that we're making is that actually the, the talent in Israel for tech is actually much broader than that. And 
even though Israel was known for semiconductors and cybersecurity, when it comes to consumer gaming, interactive entertainment, there's incredible levels of talent that are currently underserved by the local investor community. So that's where we focus. So within those sectors, you said gaming, I'd imagine just looking at your thesis, like creator economy. Yeah. I'd imagine like metaverse, um, maybe that ties into gaming, AR, VR. Like when you think about talent in Israel, how do you also think about why companies kind of start in Israel instead of maybe talent being maybe, you know, exported per se to other countries that are producing companies in these kind of areas? Like, how do you think about like that kind of function? Yeah, well, Israel is a tiny market domestically, so it's it's practically negligible. So Israeli startups have to look global from day one. Uh, sitting in London, you know, sometimes the UK market feels big enough for companies to focus on and they might not think globally from day one, you know, or, or German companies might initially target the German market. Israeli companies rarely target the Israeli market. And on the other hand, they have the a very advanced tech stack when it comes to AI, machine learning, computer vision. Until recently, I would say, they didn't feel confident to tackle consumer sectors. I think a lot of that change with success stories like Waze or like Wix, you know, the website builder, or with the, in the gaming section, you know, like uh, you have companies like Moon Active that created one game called Coin Master, which is insanely profitable and, you know, has been valued, the company has been valued at several billion. And as you develop these success stories in other verticals, you not only understand that, you know, it's possible, but also you start having alumni and talent of people that were sort of like trained in growing these companies to, to be the giants that they are. And then when they naturally leave and want to start their own thing, they're going to do things that they feel like they can be overqualified or experts in doing. So that's how you've seen sort of like the ecosystem grow. But it started very narrow, I would say, semiconductors and silicon and, you know, and that being an area of expertise and, you know, enterprise tech is still very big in Israel, but it, it has expanded massively. I think you also said, you know, something really interesting about how, you know, the Israeli market, it's very, very small, which I certainly agree with. And that Israeli startups have to go global from day one. Where are you seeing when when you're advising and, and looking at companies that are based in Israel that they usually think about what is like the first market outside of the Israeli market to and that they kind of wanted hands down U.S. Start with. Yeah. Hands down U.S. Okay. Um, and there's pretty established lines, you know, like it's, it, it used to be the case that uh, you pretty much have to move to the U.S. in order for the company to, to grow. As the CEO, you start a company in Israel, you're going to have to move it to the U.S. I think recently, in recent years, things have changed a little bit, you know, with remote, the rise of remote work and you can work from everywhere. But there's very established lines of Israeli entrepreneurs going from somewhere like Israel to either you know, Palo Alto, San Francisco, Menlo Park, Silicon Valley area, or New York, you know, sort of like more ad tech commerce related startups. I'm seeing it changing a little bit and it's no longer sort of like a pre-requirement, but uh, US is definitely the market that people are aiming. I know that there's a lot of now, a lot of excitement about metaverse and creator economy and, you know, ARVR. What are some of the opportunities that you think are maybe still overlooked or or people really maybe haven't thought about and and it could be even on like a global scale too in terms of different pockets sure so i think you know there's a lot of excitement and equally there's a lot of confusion we're in this like fuzzy front end you know period where 
the metaverse, you keep reading reports about it, you know, it's going to be worth 5 trillion, 13 trillion, depending on whose report you're reading, McKinsey, Citibank, Accenture, whatever. You have surveys saying like the two thirds of company execs are already involving their companies with the metaverse. But the reality is it's very difficult today to define what the metaverse exactly is. You know, is it Fortnite? Is it a game? Is it only VR? At the same time, I think it creates a huge opportunity because there, there is this confusion, but at the same time, there's a lot of talent working on disruptive ideas to build these 3D immersive experiences for, for consumers. And ultimately, I think the big potential is in how it's going to change every industry. So think metaverse plus health, metaverse plus education, you know, metaverse plus commerce. To get there, I think we're going to have to build a lot of infrastructure, which is where I get excited. You know, like what are the tools that are going to be needed in order to populate this virtual world, in order to create these virtual worlds, distribute them, uh, maintain them, etc. We've made several bets in this regard. So, you know, sort of like the way that we look at it is at the center, we put the consumer and, you know, consumer experiences, right? So what are the cool consumer experiences you can do. And we've invested, for example, in a gaming studio that builds experiences for girls on Roblox. So there's, you know, 1.5 billion female gamers, about half of the gaming population, but most, you know, games are more for boys. And they partner with female-related IP that wants to enter this metaverse. And in order to do that, they can't just do it alone. They have to work with the partners that are native to the platform. So that's a company called Toya. And then sort of like starting from the center, consumer experiences, all the way out to infrastructure. And an example of an infrastructure that we've made is a company called Echo3D that is a CDN and CMS for 3D content. So once you have um, sort of like these virtual worlds and you know everything has moved to 3D, how do you manage these assets in real time, serve them in the right format in every platform and get model level analytics? So Echo 3D does exactly that and you know works seamlessly across platforms and has grown from the time that we invested about a couple of years ago from like 200 developers to over 25,000 developers and attracted investment from Convoy Ventures and recently Qualcomm Ventures in a strategic round. So so the opportunities exist across the spectrum from sort of like consumer to infrastructure. And in the middle, you have enabling tech and enabling tech can be the creator economy related startups. So tools for content creation, moderation, distribution, monetization, or technologies like synthetic video, you know, to create video from text using AI. Wow. So a lot there. To your first example about investing in a company that's kind of building on top of Roblox or, or using Roblox. I'd imagine that's also quite challenging because part of the bet is that Roblox is going to also grow and expand as you know their own company. I mean, obviously, they're a, they're a huge company already, but um, to also grow and expand their number of users and what have you. How do you think, since these are some of the opportunities companies building already, what are you know their own metaverses per se there, how do you identify and assess, you know, what kind of macro platform is going to make it versus what what isn't? Because I imagine that that also is kind of like is is kind of a wrinkle that's that's hard to know. You know the expression that uh, it takes a decade to create an overnight success. You know, so like Roblox has been doing this for a long time, right? And and Roblox is a great example because they build the world, they build the the universe that where people play. 
and the economy, but the games are created by the users. The experiences are created by the users. So the investment in Toya was not a typical one because it's a bit different in terms of its economics to other gaming investments, right? Typically in gaming, it's almost like a science. Like people come to you with a genre, like they say, I'm going to do a puzzle game, you know, mobile casual game in the puzzle category. And I know how much I'm going to pay per user um, in these markets. And I know how much I'm going to make back in revenue. And, you know, this is what you can expect. When it comes to Roblox, it's kind of like related to the creator economy because all the game developers are creators. And you have the same issues that you have in the creator economy with platforms, with take rate, etc. But Roblox went from something like 250,000 in revenue shared with creators in 2020 to, I believe, over a billion in 2021. And I think they're on track to more than double that in 2022. They're definitely under a lot of pressure to increase the, the revenue for creators. The other interesting thing about Roblox is that typically a lot of the money that goes in, in a gaming investment, well, about half of the money goes to develop the game and the other half most likely goes to marketing and to, to buy those users to, to get their attention, to install your app and, and play your game. And in the case of Roblox, that's not the case. I mean, you can advertise. It's not super effective. Uh, it's not as as uh, developed a sort of like mobile app advertising. But if the game is engaging, then the Roblox algorithm would recommend users to come to your game. So what was been incredible in the case of Toya, uh, they created one of their games. It's called Miraculous Ladybug Roleplay. Miraculous Ladybug, you know, I have little kids. Uh, anyone that has kids probably knows Miraculous Ladybug. She's a superhero that turns into a ladybug. And their game has been so engaging that they received over 350 million plays with zero spent on marketing. That's unheard of in the mobile game world. So, so it was an interesting bet to sort of like see if you can build a professional game developer on top of a, another platform. I'm always a bit weary of wary, sorry, of a platform risk. You, you know, if you remember the early gaming developers on Facebook, like like Zynga with Farmville. When the platform sneezes, you catch pneumonia. It's not different here. You know, like you still have platform risk, but there is a codependency between the platform and the creators in this case. Um, so, you know, so we're pretty bullish about the future of Roblox as a platform. Yeah, I remember hearing uh, David uh, Bazuki on a um, on a podcast saying how... Um, kind of almost hands-off he wants to be with the creators. He wants his creators to obviously create and it's their creations and they're just so happy to be creating on Roblox. But it's not Roblox IP or you know that. So don't want to take words out of his mouth. But. Yeah, and I, I, I truly believe that he means that because I think that the entire Roblox experience is dependent on creators. The other interesting thing that's happening though is that there are now a growing number but still very few professional developers on Roblox. So the question is, can you sort of like elevate the experience, still enabling sort of like anyone that wants to create a game to do it, but also to provide some premium games that are sort of like developed by a professional studio that has a team and people and etc. And then when IP wants to come into these games, you know, think about any female IP you can think of, and there's plenty that probably pop to mind, they have to you know, work with a partner in order to do that. They can't just pay someone like a traditional gaming studio and say, hey, build me something for Roblox. It's just not going to work. Uh, so that's where I see an exciting opportunity as well is in professionalizing something that started very grassroots and 
and think, thinking about providing the premium experience of that. How also, because I know like, you know, maybe decades ago, invested in game studios and venture capital doesn't really go hand in hand, right? I don't think there's many VCs that were expecting game studios to create the type of returns that you would need to if they were to do well. What's kind of evolved in that thinking of why? Because essentially you're, you're invested in game studios, right? And so what's kind of like the evolution of that thinking? A little caveat, and I would say, you know, half of our investments are B2C consumers. And in, within that, I think a large percentage are focused on gaming. And the other half are sort of like the biggest uh, drivers for the consumer trends, right? So like if we believe that video is going to be 95% of the internet in the near future, then we would not hesitate to invest in a video creation technology. So B2B2C. But you're right that like a lot of our focus is on gaming, both the content and infrastructure. And it was a bit of an evolution for us as well. When we started, we started with a focus on sort of like entertainment tech, media, etc. And then when you think about entertainment, and I define entertainment as everything that we do outside of work, right? And, and how we spend our spare time outside of work. Gaming is probably the most popular form of entertainment for anyone 50 and below in the US. I mean, there's not just me saying that there's studies by Newzu, you know, we post a lot of them on our blog or on our LinkedIn page, and I invite you guys to check it out. But gaming is a huge part of, of uh, how we spend our spare time. Everyone games, you know, like people that are over 50 and women, men, children, teenagers, etc. And the gaming industry as a whole is bigger than TV and music combined. I think film as well, maybe. So it's, it's a huge industry, but it's difficult um, when you're making tech investments to invest in content and ultimately gaming investments that are not infrastructure are investments in content. And that's where sort of like you need to develop a bit of an expertise of how you assess teams KPIs, et cetera, at a very early stage and what bets are worthy of taking. But when you hit it right, you know, I think Microsoft acquisition of Activision, I believe was the largest private company acquisition ever, you know, 70 billion in cash. And um, that's an example of the power that gaming can have. There's also gaming companies that I've seen that have one game and that single game is making them about $50 million per day. You know, think about enterprise companies that have buildings full of engineers and they're fighting very hard to get $50 million per year. This is one company, you know, you know not that many people making $50 million a day with a single game. So I think it's what changed in VC that it, it has been proven that you can create venture returns with gaming. It is a bit of a specialized area. But now with Metaverse, it's very clear that gaming has become a huge entry point to the Metaverse. A, a lot of these interactive, immersive, social experiences are going to start from gaming. So I believe that the play is, is much bigger than just content that's monetized with ads and its whole economies and you know, transactions and uh, opportunities that are going to come from this. When you think about leisure, how we spend our time you know, outside of work, entertainment, where do you think, and you think about just, just time, like that, of, that amount of time that we have, um, which is fixed, where do you think the metaverse or these types of you know, immersive games, where do you think that time comes from? Like what industry do you think maybe shrinks because of the rise of, of the metaverse within like entertainment? I think you're already seeing the trends, for example, with, uh, with TV. So linear TV, right, is shrinking massively. Like... Uh, 
uh, I think it starts with cable cutting, right? And then moving everything to the cloud. And then we, you know, th those eyeballs moved from TV maybe to Netflix, right? And like streaming. And then those eyeballs, unfortunately for Netflix, are moving from streaming to TikTok, to short form. And I think those eyeballs um, are not necessarily going to leave because I think you do have multiple forms of entertainment. You know, like I would not want music to go away anytime soon, but I think that gaming and metaverse will take some of the, some of the time from, from those activities, like passive watching. Perhaps it will take time from, from streaming, like live streaming, like Twitch, you know, like how many minutes, you know, per day are, are consumed of other people, watching other people play games. You know, like I think it's something like insane, like th 340 billion minutes uh, per day or something like that are consumed. Perhaps instead of just watching someone else, you're going to do it in a more immersive way where you can interact with other people, with your friends, with maybe with the streamer themselves. And I, I read the reports like everyone else. And the assessments say that in the future we'll spend, you know, between two and four hours per day. In the form factor of today, like I have an Oculus Quest 2, you know, I don't think I don't define the metaverse as VR only or, you know, VR specific, but as a, as a way to imagine, you know, like what it would be like. I don't see myself wearing a headset for four hours a day. I think it's, it's insane. I think that a lot is going to change when Apple comes out with, with their own headsets or smart glasses. And I think that the way we will experience the metaverse is also not just going to be via one screen. You know, it's not going to be just VR or just smart glasses. It might also be on a computer like this where you're playing a game and hanging out with your friends after school in a way that is a bit different than, you know, than what you have today. I know that one of, I remember looking on Remagine Ventures site and you said, and, and it has open metaverse on there, which I've, I've heard that term a lot. And it seems like, I mean, it sounds very utopian, right? You had maybe a lot of companies all that are able to kind of share and, and you're kind of maybe if you're an avatar or, you know, whatever your, your character is, you can kind of go in between worlds. How do you think of that kind of working in the future? Is there an opportunity for that to work in the future? If you kind of have this, way to do that? Or do you more mean open in terms of you actually could use different types of technology to be in the metaverse, but it just depends how immersive or not immersive you want to be. So you could, for example, access it on your phone, your computer, or you know, wear a headset. It's maybe the same region or the same universe. It's just dependent on how kind of immersive you want to be. It's a good question. So the, the classic definition of you know distinction between open and closed metaverse is closed metaverses are these environments where essentially everything you do is constricted to that one environment. So, you know, the best example that people use today is sort of like games, right? So like you can have a game that is immersive, it's social, it, you know, it's, it's transactional, like all of the qualities of what you would describe would be in a future metaverse, you know, like could be Roblox or, or Fortnite. But ultimately, what happens on that one game stays in that game, right? Like you can invest money into your character and buy clothes for that character, buy virtual goods, etc. When you stop playing that game, that character is owned by that game. And, you know, that's it. It's sort of like closed and, and limited to that game. In the open metaverse, it's really the, the, um, the concept of interoperability, right? Like, can we have ownership of certain assets made, you know, 
be it our avatar or be it virtual goods or some currencies and have them work in multiple places that you can sort of like go around like with a credit card and it works in in the Nike shop and it also works in the supermarket. Um, that's not the way that the internet uh, sort of like, you know, in gaming works today. Everything is close to one environment. You're right that today this open metaverse is still very, very early stages. Uh, some of it is being addressed with sort of like Web3 smart contracts, infrastructure of how to manage all these assets on the blockchain so they can be accessed no matter where you are. And some of it is just sort of like um, still still a, a bit of a dream. Um, recently, I think last week, Andreessen Horowitz led a 56 million Series B for a company called Ready Player Me. Ready Player Me, uh, not one of our companies, but I met uh, Timo, the founder, very early on and was very impressed with what he was building. Uh, unfortunately, it's not an Israeli startup, so it was out of scope for us. But uh, what they do is they help users, initially help users create avatars, right? And they built a great avatar creation tool. Uh, you can personalize that avatar, uh, but there weren't that many places where you can use the avatar. It was more like a vanity thing of like, I'm going to have a digital mic, you know, like a mini version of me that I can play with. But then they started offering it to developers. And today I believe there's more than 3,000 developers that include Ready Player Me avatars in their experiences. So it could be games, it could be virtual worlds, it could be virtual concert platforms. And Andreessen Horowitz justified the investment as saying this is the first real attempt that we're seeing at interoperability. And I believe that we're going to see much more of that. Right, So they're focusing on avatars, but there might be other companies that focus on the currency elements, on, on the virtual goods elements, or on helping brands sort of like work with games and, and then help you take that brand affinity across games. Um, it's very early days, but I'm excited about what that may bring. That's a great example um, in terms of one maybe use case or, or attempt to actually see um, building an avatar that actually is able to communicate or, or or to be in many different worlds. I mean, how I think about this a little bit is a bit to like airlines and, and airlines miles, where you have miles, you have your own currency, right? You have miles for each airline you do, but those miles typically aren't very transferable. Some of them have, of course, alliances with other airlines, but that kind of currency that you've built up by flying with them hasn't really actually been able to been transferred to you know an airline that's out of the network. So I'm personally interested to see how it actually will not be like airlines miles and actually be able to kind of fluctuate. No, I love that analogy. And I think that, first of all, if you have status, uh, you know, in an airline, you will probably choose another airline that's affiliated, you know, in order to preserve that status because you like the benefits that it brings you. And I think some of those, some of those, you know, foundations will, will sort of like apply here as well. But I also have seen back in the day, I don't know if it's still available now, where you were able to take, for example, hotel points and convert them into airline points and sort of like transfer assets from one thing to another. And I have seen startups try to help people do it because what happens is you you get really deep into a game and then you may be invested and bought currency, et cetera, but then you stop playing that game. Now you have this unutilized asset that today in a closed environment, it's not easy to sell or convert or, or do anything with. It's sort of like stuck. So I've seen interesting attempts, including Israeli startups that are trying to create this interoperability of currency and say like, well, 
when you buy the currency, you buy our currency, basically, and we supply you with the game's currency. But then when you finish using the game's currency, we, you sort of like you resell it to us and get our type of currency. And then you can use another, you know, sort of like take it to another layer. So these are early attempts and, uh, you know, it's, they haven't yet mature, but I do think that we will see a lot more of like a fintech angle to this. Yeah, and, and then you have like a whole like currency exchange maybe with just other forms of... Exactly, and maybe there's an arbitrage on trading currencies per games or like I'm going to buy this game's currency early because I know that it can help me get more currency of another game later. Right, right, no, that's, that's a really, really great point. You were at Google Ventures. Why did you end up leaving Google Ventures in order to start Remagine? Yeah, so... I had an amazing time at Google. I joined Google um, initially in 2010 after finishing an MBA and working several years leading product teams. Um, so I was a product manager, senior product manager, principal product manager. And then I got my MBA and I said, like, you know what? I want to do business. And I joined Google initially to do something completely different to what I've done before. And that was strategic partnerships and help launch a bunch of products for Google in EMEA. And I launched Google Shopping in various markets. You know, I helped with the launch of Google Wallets, same-day deliveries. I did all the reviews partnerships. And I really enjoyed the, the change of pace. But my passion was really startups and venture capital. And I was looking desperately, is there anything I can do with Google around startups or venture capital. And then one day, Eric Schmidt gave a speech at back in the day, and this is 2011, and said, we're going to open an innovation center in London for startups. And it was the first of its kind. And I'm like, okay, this is it. I found sort of like the speech in an internal website. I looked who created that internal website and emailed them and said like, hey, I just found out we're doing this. How can I help? That idea or, or speech ended up becoming Google Campus. And I was very fortunate to have been selected to, to launch Google Campus, the first physical hub for startups made by Google from the ground up. That was in 2012. Campus became hugely successful, became a magnet sort of like for entrepreneurs in the UK, but also beyond. It was the first time you could really touch Google when you're a startup. To give you an idea of scale, we did a thousand events in the first year alone. That's three a day, including weekends. And then Google asked me to replicate that model internationally, and I became the head of Google for Entrepreneurs in Europe and helped launch campuses in, in other countries like you know Madrid, Warsaw, Tel Aviv, um, and then Sao Paulo, Seoul, um, Tokyo, etc. And partnerships in, in Berlin and Paris. And, and then I joined Google Ventures as the first general partner outside of the US, and it was an amazing sort of like roller coaster ride, meteoric uh, rise to, to, to that position. And it was uh, in many ways, you know, sort of like a, a dream came, that came true. At the same time, when I was at Google Ventures, I had multiple people approach me and said, let's start a fund together. And, and they came in different flavors. And, you know, one of them was like a billionaire, extremely successful investor. Another one was a friend, but focusing on an area that, you know, I'm less interested in. And one of them was my partner at Remagine, Kevin, who was basically also uh, managing investments on behalf of a corporate, but into Israeli startups. And he actually managed to convince that corporate to, to he was leaving the company and he managed to convince them to sort of like invest in an independent fund that would do what he was doing. So we, we actually came together uh, after, you know, knowing each other for 20 years and starting a company in college 
in 2003, uh, you know, like uh, dating myself and working for a startup in New York called GLG, like one of the world's largest expert networks that received a billion dollar valuation in 2006. And we created Remagine Ventures One essentially as a multi-corporate Google Ventures where we invest independently for financial returns. But in addition to the company that my friend was investing for, uh, we managed to convince a few other strategics to back us. So Remagine Ventures One is this independent fund that invests in early stage startups, but it's backed by a number of strategics that enables us to, one, get real-time feedback from the market before we invest, and two, support our portfolio companies in a very meaningful way. So the opportunity to do something that I believe in with someone I know and trust and like, you know, and worked with in various capacities for 20 years was just, you know, too good for me to pass on. That sounds um, amazing. And what was the reason, since you have experience, you know, investing in, in a, number, uh, a number of countries, um, you know, around the world, why Israel? So I grew up in Israel. Uh, I was born in Argentina, but I grew up in Israel. I moved to Israel when I was eight years old. I spent my formative years in Israel. And I actually co-founded a startup in 2003, as I mentioned, out of college in Israel. And, and that was, I think, a transformative experience, you know, sort of like going and pitching to VCs back in the day and sort of like being on the other side of the table. But then Seeing a startup at scale, well, it's, it's hardly a startup today, but GLG, Gerson Lerman Group back in the day, the first sort of like expert network connecting experts and clients. Back in the day, it was hedge funds, but now it's like corporates, consulting firms, you know, you name it. Was, you know, it was sort of like seeing it in, in, in warp speed, like the, the level of talent. And so I knew since I was little, I guess, you know, I wanted to, to be doing this. I wanted to be a VC and I want to focus on Israeli startups because I've seen that Israeli entrepreneurs can be extremely technical, but where they sort of like need a little bit of help is in opening doors and go to market and, you know, stuff that I'm more equipped, given my international experience in helping them with. So between myself and my partner, we complement each other like uh, very much. But, you know, Kevin is based in Tel Aviv. I'm based in London and I go between the two. I come from a product background. Kevin comes more from a business and management background, but also like co-founded startups and, and raise money from VCs. Both of us have and, and, and sort of like manage large teams. So it's, it's really a privilege to work with entrepreneurs, you know, and, and help them grow. How do you think about the market today? How are you currently analyzing opportunities today? That's probably a cause for a drink. Uh, I think we're, we're, we're in a definitely in the midst of a transition point, right? Like something has definitely changed. 2021, was like, you know, sort of like people sort of writing checks very quickly, valuations where, you know, the multiples were very high. And in 2022, it looks exactly the opposite, right? Like there's a pullback from the market, from a lot of VCs, like a pause in investments, sort of like the performance of the public market have compressed multiples, you know, drastically. And the IPO window is currently closed. So I think it's a time to exercise caution, both on the entrepreneur side and on the VC side. And like everyone else, you know, we've been working with our portfolio companies to make sure that they are well equipped to not only survive this period, but also thrive. So whoever had to raise sort of like help them get over the line, whoever had to make changes and adjustments, you know, help them make those adjustments and make sure that they're, you know, well equipped to, to survive a potentially prolonged winter. But at the same time, 
I think that the worst forecast, you know, like recession, downturn, etc., have yet to materialize, right? Like the flights are full, the restaurants are full. Yes, we're starting to see the beginning of inflation with rising interest rates and, you know, the prices are going up. Specifically for our topic, Mike, you know, consumer, I think it will have an impact on discretionary spend and how much money people spend sort of like that is outside this sort of like rent and food, etc. But at the same time, it's yet too early to say, is this going to be a prolonged winter or are we what we're seeing is sort of like a blip and things are sort of like uh, going to to adjust themselves. Personally, I believe that uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. You know, so you have to take steps. You have to rip the Band-Aid. You know, like this happened across the board, at least in Israel and I'm sure in the U.S. as well. Companies have laid off people. You know, companies have reduced their projected burns in terms of how much are they going to grow in terms of headcount. And marketing spend has to be spent cautiously, perhaps with more of a a view on ROI and and sales efficiency versus like growth at all costs. And these are things that... uh, to a large extent, I, I agree with, but you have to also balance it with continue to innovating and growing because in startups, that's the name of the game. So that's how I see it. I see it as a time of um, necessary to take action, you know, stay optimistic, but also don't be blind to what's happening and, and make sure that you're well equipped to survive this period. It's a really great point in the world of consumer about consumer spend, how flights are still full and we haven't seen consumer spend drop really or really much of a change in it. So so in terms of for, you know, consumer startups and just the world of consumer innovation, we haven't this might be still a good opportunity to maybe launch your business as well and as well as to keep going. I wrote about it recently in sort of like a post on VC Cafe about the are we in a creator economy winter where I talk about that a little bit that you know, it might be more difficult to get those dollars from consumers, but it doesn't mean that there's no business there. You know, it means that you need to make adjustments. So maybe instead of charging a subscription, think about how you can charge a revenue share where you make money when the, when the creator makes money. And if you are a creator and you're charging consumers, you know, like maybe instead of charging for that subscription, think about how you can monetize with advertising because there's still brands that want to reach those audiences, etc., so that's what I mean. It's like, uh, it's not, uh, we haven't sort of like, it's not time to pack up and go home and say like, okay, innovation startups are over, but it's definitely not the the good old days uh, of 2021. And I think in many ways, this correction is actually healthy for the market. One of the questions we've actually had on this podcast quite a bit, I'd love to hear your perspective is what's next after the iPhone as we're like the main consumer platform. Would love to kind of see your thoughts around that and as well as how you're thinking about who actually wins or could be a winner when it comes to VR. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. I think um, when I created a mobile um, text input solution in 2003, I was doing a keyboard for mobile in 2003. The iPhone came in 2007 or eight, you know, like the App Store, I think, was launched in in 2008. So to distribute software on mobile back in the day, I had to do OEM agreements with the manufacturers and, you know, the cycles were so long. And then when the iPhone came, think about how much value was created from this invention of the mobile and the App Store and companies like Uber and Airbnb and, you know, 
Amazon largely benefited uh, massively, like all the gaming companies uh, that were created, you know, as a result of this sort of mobile gaming, huge industries were born after this. I think that smart glasses are probably going to be that next computing platform, the form factor that we know today, like I was one of the early recipients of Google Glass, I, I believe one of the first outside of the US. And it was very cool back in the day to be able to take hands-free video, but it, the form factor was basically what got people to be called glass holes, right? Like it was a bit creepy, you know, like it, it wasn't widely accepted. And I think since then, you've seen a, a number of companies from Snap to to Facebook slash Meta partnering with Ray-Ban, you know, and other companies sort of like come out with glasses. And I think it's going to get more normalized, but there's no company like Apple to make that change permanent, right? So unfortunately, I'm, I suffer from the same problem, you know, like I have a, a MacBook, I have an iPhone, I have AirPods, and probably I'll have the glasses as well. And I think that once that becomes normalized, there's going to be huge companies built on top of this new computing platform. And, and I think it's not AR and it's not VR. I think it's actually going to be this XR, you know, or like mixed reality overlays on top of sort of like what we see. It's not about being shut out from the world. It's about enhancing the world. And I think that there's going to be opportunities across the board from infrastructure like Echo 3D, managing 3D content in the cloud to enabling technology, like helping people create these overlays on top of reality and, you know, creator economy tools that help people create interesting content, etc. to consumer experiences from, from games to scavenger hunts to, you know, to like uh, tools for dating, you know, to tell you what's the next line you should say to, to impress your date. You know, that's, that's all coming, I feel like. And, um, it's too early to say, but I think Apple, um, in the last couple of days, it came out that they, they filed a few trademarks around reality. And the rumors are that uh, that's going to be sort of like the focus of their new headset. So if nothing else, I think it will steer other companies to, to also come out with products. Uh, you know, Meta is coming out with another headset in October, but in, in all, you know, in all expectations, I believe it will still take a couple of years at least, if not more, for this to be sort of like out in the wild and, you know, people using them every day. It's going to start as an expensive toy and we're probably five years away from it being sort of like penetration to the market. Yeah, no, and I, I appreciate your analysis in terms of how big tech is, who you think will, will win or, or even just what will be, you know, a game changer for it. What do you think? Like, would you would you buy... An Apple headset and, uh, you know, take it out in the wild? If the price is right, I probably would. I probably would if the price is right. Exactly. I don't own an Oculus. One of my cousins does. I tried it the other day, though, and thought it was pretty remarkable what you can do. We had, we were playing Plank. Yeah. And, like, my parents couldn't, like, go off the Plank. They just thought it was way too scary. <laughs> it's just crazy, some of the technology that, that, of course, is out there. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? I read a book called The Five Temptations of the CEO by Patrick Lancioni. It's really written in the form of a fable, like a, a story about a guy sort of like in a train. And uh, it's really easy to digest, but I think the lessons are very powerful. And professionally, I recommend it to CEOs and I receive good feedback from people. So, you know, I, I highly recommend it. And perhaps uh, 
a book that inspired me personally. Well, I really enjoyed the last lecture by a professor. I believe he was at MIT. Unfortunately, he suffered from, from terminal cancer and he sort of like talks about his life with that perspective. And I think having lost my dad at a very young age, I sort of like have this fragility of life and a, you know, a reminder that like uh, every day is a gift. Um, so I think it's good to have perspective in whatever we do. Yeah, thank you for those. Um, I don't think we've had any other person yet talk about Five Temptations of the CEO, but excited to add that to our, our list. And the last lecture, we've had a couple other folks uh, bring that up, how powerful it was for them. So that's really cool. Easy. thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun. Thanks, Mike. Likewise, thanks for having me and great to finally make it happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So excited to chat. Thank you. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Easy. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at edigs, E-D-I-G-G-S. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>